No messing around, kids. No messing around. We are live. It is Monday night. You know what that means. This is the Toronto Beer Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Schrag. Guys, I'm back. I am back. And we'll talk about this voice. We'll talk about We'll talk about everything, guys. I'm an open book, but before we do that, you know what we got to do. Take a listen to my buddy Rob Curry and the Curry Brothers with our theme, Link Ray Gun. has already joined in the broadcast she's tuned into the station across the nation the toronto beer podcast that's what all the cool kids are listening to and if i've learned one thing in my 20 plus years of marriage to erica she is one of the cool kids hey friends uh you know what let's not pour this just out let me let's deal with some housekeeping some parish notices as a podcast i listen to likes to call it hey what's up how you doing did you have a good holiday Monday there last week? Yeah? Family day? You spent some time with your family? You enjoy that? Good for you. I didn't. I was sick. I was... No, wait. Last Monday I was I was sick, but I worked. Sunday was the day I barely did anything. I just laid in bed all day and didn't do anything. I was a real sad sack. I was also a sad sack on Monday, but I was a more productive sad sack on Monday. But by the way, by the time it would have come uh, to be recording time, I was a sad sack and I was in bed and I had, I mean, the only thing I had less interest in than drinking a beer was talking about a beer. I had zero interest in either of those things. And so uh, that's how it goes. I got sick, guys. A week ago this past Friday, I came home, could feel it coming. Woke up Saturday morning, not feeling awesome, but I had a tattoo appointment, so I toughed that out. The whales on my back are officially done, which means that Steph will only touch it up two or three more times, but ostensibly we're done, which is a nice feeling. Uh, Actually, it's not a nice feeling. Right now, we're at the stage where the hair that I have to shave off, because I have hair on my back, because... You don't get a beard like this and not be a hairless fella, let me tell you. Anyway, you have to shave all that off, and then it grows back. And the thing, and, and, well, you know, if you've grown a beard before, you'll be aware there's a period somewhere after the first week where it's really itchy. And what that is, is when you shave your hairs flush to the skin, the hairs themselves the ends get quite, um, they're, they're, they're blocked. They're 90 degrees. And those edges, those corners to that cylinder of hair are actually a little pricky, a little pointy. So anyway, the hair starts to grow out and then it starts to curl. And then it curls around to a point where that hair starts touching your skin and it's like poking it and it irritates it. And you're itchy all the time. That's me right now, but I'm itchy right now because I've got a super cool tattoo on my back. So that's awesome. If you want to check it out, you can look at my Instagram. I'm at Chris Schreier, S-C-H-R-Y-E-R. Actually, having said that, I think I only posted it in my stories. I don't know. Figure it out, guys. It's the internet. It's not hard. Anyway, after that, it really took it out of me, and then I got real sick. And so Sunday sucked. Monday, I tried to work. That didn't go amazing. Tuesday, I tried to work again. That went much worse. I ended up having to take Wednesday and Thursday off. And in actual fact, I wasn't awesome on Friday, but I was fine. I worked. And then we went away for the weekend and I was in pretty good nick on the weekend. I felt more or less fine. Today, I've been feeling great, but I don't know. All of a sudden, my voice is blowing out and it's getting pretty raspy. Um, It wasn't particularly cold out today, but I did spend a lot of time outside. And that does tend to kind of tax my throat a bit. And uh, anyway... I can feel it happening. It could be blown out by the end of this episode. I don't know what's going to happen. More the reason that we should probably stop with the jibber jabber and get into the beer. Now, don't you worry. We got a banger of a beer and then uh, we've got some rugby to talk about. And I know I know how much y'all love it when I talk about rugby. Believe me, this past weekend in the Six Nations, if you did not wait, if you did not watch it, you missed a heck for weekend. Holy moly. Not a great weekend to be a Welsh fan, but other than that, what a weekend. Okay, let's get into the beer. What do we have here? Well, on my way back from my tattoo appointment, I have to drive right past um, 30 Queen Elizabeth Boulevard, Etobicoke, Ontario. I need only to exit the QEW at Islington North. And um, 
it's just a hop, skip and a jump or, you know, a few minutes driving over to our friends at Great Lakes Brewery. I went in, I picked up some beers. I'm 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 only a, a man. I'm not a I'm not a strong fella. I can't resist the temptation, even after a three and a half hour tattoo session and the impending uh, suffering of a cold. I still had to swing by and pick up some beers and beers I did pick. And I picked up this one, among others. This is Carmageddon double IPA. They go for the double IPA as opposed to the Imperial IPA, although Imperial IPA, when you fully initialize, it becomes IIPA, which is double I. PA. It might be the same thing. I might have just stumbled across across a linguistic truth, which is that Imperial IPA and double IPA are the exact same thing linguistically. I mean, stylistically, they're definitely the same thing. They're just two different names for the same thing. But I'm actually going to argue that they're not two different names. They're just two different ways of interpreting the same name, which is Imperial IPA. Frig, why am I still holding this? I got to open it. Guys, stop asking questions. Okay, now I did go out of my way to clean this glass, but then I took a long time to get to this, so it's kind of dried out. As a rule, friends, you should always pour beer in a wet glass, but let's see what happens. Oh, you know what? Doesn't look too bad. We've got some really good non-oil-based dish detergent, which helps, as does a foxtail brush. Oh, that glass is... Almost perfectly clean, which is saying a lot for me. Often, it's not. This is Carmageddon Imperial IPA. That's two I's, P-A, I-I-P-A, double I-P-A. It is, if you're not watching the video, actually less murky than I was expecting. I mean, it's hazy, but I can see through it. Like, I can see my computer screen and there's my microphone and there's me holding a beer. There's actually an interesting visual effect. Hmm. I'd like to explore that more. I think I know what's happening, but there's a weird tripling of the reflection. The point is this is like a nice honey amber touching on orange, still quite yellow, but it's, it's, it's darker than a standard, you know, yellow lager, little hazy, uh, heads dropped actually quicker than I would have thought, but it was a bit of a fluffy white head. Let's stick our schnozzle in there. By the way, this is a style of beer that I would only buy from a handful of breweries. That handful would include... Now, I'm going to forget somebody and I'm going to feel bad, and I apologize in advance. Uh, But absolutely Great Lakes. Definitely Amsterdam. Definitely Reinhardt. They do great things with hops up at Reinhard. Haven't had a Reinhard in a while. And I definitely haven't done one on the show. I got to re- remedy that. Uh, left field. Left field makes really good um, <laughs> double IPAs. IIPAs. I really got to let that bit go. I'm just very tickled. It just occurred to me. Uh, what was I saying? Who else does great double IPAs? You know those IPAs that are like double IPAs? That was actually on social media the other day. That was Radical Road. Haven't had that one yet. It's based on when that was posted, probably still about two weeks away, but maybe I'll get that too. Anyway, my point is I tend to stay away from double IPAs because unfortunately a lot of breweries that probably don't have the depth of experience um, and knowledge to successfully execute a double IPA will attempt a double IPA on the principle that like, well, if I can make an IPA, I can just add more malt to jack up the alcohol content and then dump in a ton of more hops. And hey, presto, double IPA. That's not how it works, guys. I appreciate that in principle, it's just a turned up version of a beer you already know how to make. It's not. It's really from a production point of view, it requires a different approach. It's a different beer. And some breweries know that and are very good at that. Some breweries don't know that and make a mess of it. And I bet there are probably some breweries that know that and try anyway and just don't succeed. But my point is, um, for me, the experience of a lot of double, pardon me, double IPAs, it's one of disappointment, but it's rarely the case with Great Lakes. So we're about to find out if that's the case here. Now, I'm thankfully um, not congested. I've been on and off congested, what with this pox I've been suffering under. 
Hmm. It's it's less aggressively aromatic than I would have expected. I'm going to put that out there right now. It absolutely smells of grapefruit peels and oranges and mango. So the, the tropical notes, they're there. I am a little worried that I'm tasting with my brain and also that I'm assuming that the only thing... Wait a minute. I, I have to confess. I have made a mental um, assumption which is absolutely must be incorrect. My sense of my, my, my sense of scent, I think is still accurate. I was about to caution that I might be tasting with my brain because I'm assuming it's all Citra. And then I went, wait a minute, why am I assuming it's all Citra? The beer is called Carmageddon. And I think what I did is I like mentally transported Karma Citra, but then somehow in my brain made Karma the hop, not Citra. And so then Carmageddon is like a double IPA made exclusively with that hop karma, which doesn't exist, which I was thinking was Citra. It's not, I I have no idea what the hops are in here. So I can't be tasting with my brain or smelling with my brain because I don't know what's in here. Now I might've been assuming I knew and making judgment calls based on that. That's a whole nother story. Tasting's hard guys. People think you just stick stuff in your mouth and drink it. And that's you done. It's not. This is work, man. And I'm not getting paid. Okay. Anyway, back to this. There's definitely a bit of an evergreeny thing. It's a little bit dank. It's just very, 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 very juicy on top. So that's a little hard to get through the juicy down to that. Um, malts, like maybe some, maybe some crystal malt. There's a malty quality to it. And it, it's, it's, Spiking a little something that's crystally to me. I assume there's crystal malt in here. The other thing is, again, smelling in my brain. One of the things with the double IPA is it's one of those places where you actually kind of do need a bit of crystal malt. Um, you know, a lot of IPAs don't have to be made with crystal malt. That was sort of a thing of the past. And so a lot of people are moving away from that. Double IPAs, it's not required, but it's it's almost required. Okay, less talk, more drink, man. Holy moly take a week off and all I can do is just run my mouth all the time. Holy. <laughs> mm. Okay. No worries. <clears throat> no worries on the palate there. Maybe my nose is a little less sensitive than I'm used to. Like I'm not congested. I can breathe through it, but maybe like my sense of smells a little messed up. Because holy moly. <laughs> That's a heck of a beer. That, that, um, that, that packs a wallop, as I think the kids would say. Mmm. Man, that's good. Oh, man, that is... That is not... That is not a beer for the faint of heart. And incidentally, if you're one of the people who's like, why is everything going to be so hoppy all the time? All these beers are just these like hops. They're always bitter. I just, why do beers always have to take? Yeah, you're going to hate this. Holy moly. And I'm going to love you hating it. Sign me TF up. I'll have some more of this, please. Well, actually, I probably won't. I'll probably just have the one tonight because I think it's over 8% alcohol. I think. Mm. I say that. Well, I wouldn't be that specific based on the taste. It definitely has a booziness to it. This thing. I, so I think I know that's over 8% because I think I remember seeing that on the sign or on the can or something. I try not to look too closely, but sometimes you pick that sort of thing up. If I were tasting this blind, I would assume it was over seven for sure. There's some warming alcohol on the back end. And also there's just... Um, you hit a level of hopping where if the beer can keep up with it in terms of malt, you you know there has to be a lot of alcohol there. And that's the case here. Um, this can does say 8.1%, so yeah. I was thinking 8.2, but I didn't want to be too specific. Now, I'm pouring the last little bit in the glass. By the way, did I pour on screen for the kids at home? Kids? I'm sorry, I took a holiday and I completely forgot about you. 
I did top it up. And if you're looking at the video, kids at home, the clarity has not changed. It's exactly the same. So there's that. Okay, back on track. So what does this even taste like? I haven't really told you, aside from the fact that, good golly, does it taste. Hmm. I would have expected, based on the aroma for the predominant flavors, to be that of um, citrusy grapefruit peel. That is not actually the case. There is citrusy grapefruit peel, probably some orange and also some orange juice, maybe a bit of grapefruit juice. Um, it's quite bitter in the fruitiness. There's maybe a touch of mango, but mango can be kind of hard to pull out when a beer is this bitter um, because the notes that I get off of mango fruits, I don't know why I just had to clarify that it's a fruit. Anyway, it's like kiwis called beets beetroot. I'm like, as opposed to the tops, I guess they call it beetroot and maybe the leaves are beets and we call them beets and beet tops. Oh, maybe it's because it's the other side of the planet. So theirs are like upside down. So they're still naming them in the same height convention. They're just doing it on the other side of the planet. Maybe that's it because everyone knows north is up even when you're down. Well, now I've gone ahead and alienated all four of my Southern Hemisphere listeners. Um, let's get back to this beer. Mm. It's dank. It's evergreen. It's forest floor. It's not super weedy. Have I ever talked to you about how sometimes really aggressively hot beers get an almost... I always worry about saying it. I feel like I've had this conversation with you before. It's an almost cheesy quality. In fact, it, it, I said it's not too weedy. Have you ever had a weed that was a little cheesy? It's like that. It's something to do with the plant material, and I don't exactly understand it. It's going to be something based on the, um, the terpenes, but... Pfft, who do I look like over here? Jordan St. John? Guy who knows terpene names like the back of his hand. Do people still? I don't, even, I don't, I don't know, but it does have that. Um, it's very evergreeny, piney, forest flory, dank, slightly weedy, cheesy. And then there's, um, again, more bitterness like peel of grapefruit and orange with maybe a little orange juiciness. You definitely get a, a glimmer, is how I would describe it, a touch of a sweet maltiness, which again, I'm going to attribute to crystal malt, maybe even honey, hard to say. Uh, honey malt, incidentally, is a crystal malt, I'm pretty sure. I think it's a type of crystal malt, but... And then the finish is like, I mean, my teeth aren't squeaky, but it's a sticky, resinous, sappy almost... Um, hoppy finish with a bit of alcoholic heat uh, for double IPAs this one is exceptional which to be fair is exactly what I would expect and exactly why I bought it um, again the number of breweries I would even bother picking one of these up from is vanishingly small. I mean, I, I even tried to list, but like I would count them on my fingers and have extra fingers. Um, this is just not an easy style of beer to do. Um, like I was going to say with balance, obviously it doesn't have balance in the sense that we think of like the way that an English pale ale has balance or that like a nice snappy lager has balance. Like it's wildly out of balance. It's very bitter. <laughs> But the balance that they strike between the alcoholic heat and the malty sweetness and the overwhelmingly bitter hoppy presence, they get that balance right. And the problem is with a lot of double IPAs, they don't. So sometimes you'll get double IPAs that are like, like hot with alcoholic heat, like you like, well, a little bit like drinking an imperial stout or like a Baltic Porter where there's like a, a boozy, like almost like a spirit, like heat 
that'll hit you when you drink it. Um, th this is nowhere near that. There's some alcoholic heat, but it's very much in check. Uh, another thing that'll happen is they'll uh, the brewer will build the recipe, but will either intentionally to save money or accidentally through a lack of knowledge, way undershoot on the hopping and especially the bittering hops, the early hops. And then what you end up with is like this malt bomb that's like chewy and sweet with like a bit of a bitterness and some alcoholic heat. But it's like it almost drinks like a uh, like a wee heavy. When's the last time you had a wee heavy, by the way? When's the last time you even saw somebody make a wee heavy? Wee heavies are nice in their way and in their time. Frig, somebody needs to make a wee heavy. Let's get on that, please. There's a good reason, by the way, that I'll talk about in a few minutes why we should make a wee heavy. That's a little teaser, kids. Because wee heavies is a Scottish style of beer. I'm going to let that hang. Uh, anyway, back to Carmageddon from Great Lakes. Holy moly, what a nice beer. What does the can say? It says, you know what brings good karma? All the hops. Fair. Ingredients. Water, malted barley, oats, wheat, hops. He didn't even talk about the fact that there's oats. I mean, oats and wheat, sure. Sure. The hopping here um, really kind of draws your attention. <laughs> really puts the focus on one thing. Uh, but it's delicious. It's, I mean, this is, this is not an easy drinking beer. This is a thinking beer. Uh, or, as occasionally happens to me, and I try and actually disallow myself from doing this by, say, like, only buying two of these and making sure I have one now and one sometime in the early evening. Um, what occasionally happens with these, and hey, it happens to the best of us, guys, and I'm hardly the best of us. Uh, you'll have one in the fridge, and um, you'll also have, like, uh, two PBRs and um, a Greenwood from left field and um, a Space Invader. And you'll get home from work, and you'll crack that first PBR. Man, you'll barely even feel it. You'll barely, you, you know? I mean, it's cold in the hand. And uh, I'll confess, you can feel the rim of the can on your lip because we're not pouring that bad boy out. We are. We're pouring it out down the gullet. And man, does that go down smooth. I mean, you don't win a blue ribbon for a beer if you don't make a smooth drinking lager beer. But uh, <laughs> they're still riding that 140 year old blue ribbon. Um, anyway, you have that. It's great. Right. Like and. I mean, there are days when you have that standing in front of the beer fridge in your office, possibly in your underwear, if you're me. And then you take, you finish it, and you take the next PBR out of the fridge, and you put on your clothes, and then you go to the kitchen, and you have that PBR, you know, while you're working on dinner uh, for the first 10 minutes, because that's about all it takes. And then you, you get to a nice um, point in the prep when you can, you know, sachet off to procure yourself another beer and you go to the beer cooler and you look and you oh okay well uh i'm gonna have that uh i'm gonna have that space invader and you have the space invader you're drinking it but then you have it with dinner you know that's your dinner beer that's fine it's good dinner beer depending on what you're eating but you're probably eating something that's good dinner beer with if you're me and i am so that's how we're gonna roll and then you have that and you think that's a real good beer that's a good beer and then you have that and then you know after dinner uh, maybe you're sitting down on the couch. You're going to uh, maybe you're going to put on a, a rugby game, the highlights from the weekend. And, uh, well, you know, you're not made of stone. You might be a little thirsty, you might might feel a little parched. Maybe dinner was a little salty again. If it was me and I am me, it was. And so you oh, grab another beer. So you go in the, the fridge. And at this point, let's remember you're three beers deep. This isn't a problem, you know, but maybe at this point you're thinking about the, the rugby game you're going to watch, you know, how's Vandermerve going to go this time? You go to the icebox and you're not really thinking. You just, you grab that, that left field. It's there with like angelic lights reflecting around it. Oh, that's the one I want there. And you take it. Yeah, I mean, like with the Space Invader, you're going to pour this one out. This one's going in a glass. You pour that in the glass and you're having a good old time. You're drinking it. Things are good. But now it's like nine o'clock 
And you've had four beers in about three hours. It's manageable. Two of them are short cans and not particularly punchy beers. Like, fine. Probably, you probably wouldn't operate a vehicle, but you're certainly more or less sober. Um, gosh, don't you just want one more beer? And you think, I think there was a few things left in the fridge. I'm going to go check. And then you look and then you realize the only things left in the fridge are like wildly unapproachable bottles like nine-year-old Unibrew 17s and four years ago's Great Lakes Double Tempest and, you know, the sort of things that have wax seals. And you're not going to open that. It's, it's Thursday. But there's that Carmageddon. And you go, yeah, it's the worst that can happen. I'll tell you the worst that can happen, friends. You feel like hell the next day. That's what happens. You wake up, your teeth are squeaky, your tongue is thick and feels like you have a sweater on. All you can taste are hops and your head feels like somebody kicked it. And, uh, but the, oh man, that beer went down smooth when you drank it. I have no recollection why I was telling that anecdote. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's the beer. Probably not. With dinner, I had a Pilsner or Kel. Thanks for asking. We had fish curry, Thai fish curry. Green. It was nice. Uh, would I have a, a green Thai fish curry with this beer? No. That I don't think would be quite the right uh, pairing. That said, a, a very spicy red curry, Thai, or gold, which is like a red curry with like curry powder and turmeric and often peanut butter added uh but that level of of spicing not in terms of picante but in terms of spice cabinet spicing that with the, the it's very picante as well uh would go pretty decently with this beer i would also eat this beer with any sort of spicy potato chip which i'm a sucker for a spicy potato chip and, uh, and definitely some cheeses. This go well with some funky cheeses, because again, that weedy, cheesy thing actually kind of works well with things like kind of danker cheddars and stuff. Works really well. So that's where you're going to go with food with this. With this, what am I talking about? Mmm. I'm talking about Carmageddon Double IPA from Great Lakes. IIPA, Imperial IPA, Double IPA. See, it's the same. I just discovered that earlier this episode. If you're just tuning in now, this is a big moment for me, but I've had it now, so we're done. Anyway, Carmageddon, what hops are in here? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I was actually on Ben Johnson's uh, podcast, Beer and, uh, you know, Male Cow Excrement. Uh, first time I ever met his co-host, Chris, same name. Better looking than me, without a doubt. But a good guy. I'll give him some credit. Uh, anyway, at one point, Ben pointed out that, like, I, I can tell you what kind of hops are in beers. That was a big challenge, especially given that my sense of smell right now is a little diminished. But with that in mind, this has, mm, oh, there's maybe a little, maybe a little honeydew melon in there. I'm not sure if that's because when you drink a very hoppy beer, the hops kind of layer in. And you start to lose sensitivity to certain tastes, but then that means you can start to taste other things that you haven't lost sensitivity to. I'm wondering if that's where that came from. H honeydew? Honeydew. I don't think it's cantaloupe. I think it's melon. It's definitely not water. I think it's honeydew. Mmm. All this to say, I was talking about what hops are probably in here. There's definitely citra. There is... Probably galaxy between the citrusy and the earthy qualities. I'm going to give it some galaxy. I honestly, I assume there's some mosaic in here. I'm not necessarily getting things that are characteristically mosaic. Some of this citrusy interplay could be mosaic and citric combined. I actually think that one of the major factors here is Simcoe. Simcoe. Simcoe can be quite dank and piney, but also still possess some citrus peel. 
I also wouldn't be surprised if it was used as the bittering hop and or they used like a big C, like a Centennial or one of the blends, Tomahawk or something like that. I don't know. Let's look it up. I wonder if it says great likes karma. Yep, that's the one. Great Lakes, Carmageddon, Carmageddon, Geddon, 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 Geddon. Great Lakes, seven barrel series two, according to the Google. Wait, 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 where am I? Oh, this is. Oh, 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 I ended up in their. In their retail store. Is that where I wanted to end up? I don't know. Anyway, there's Carmageddon. What does it say about Carmageddon? Oh, not a lot, actually. Huh. Buckle up, because we jam-packed Carmageddon with a cornucopia of a colossal growing season's hop harvest. Useful, thank you. Carmageddon pours burnt orange. Okay. Uh, and wastes no time emitting aromas of sweet, ripe, tropical citrus and melon. Ha! Didn't smell any melon, but I did smell the citrus. It packs a full-flavored mango punch. They think there's mango in there, even if I'm having trouble with it, with a warming sweetness and finishes full, sharp, but smooth. Hmm. Full, yes, sharp. Oh, oh, okay, maybe not, actually. I don't know if I would buy sharp. I would, I, hmm. I would have gone with a stringently bitter. I don't know if that's what they're talking about. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's delicious. And it does not tell me what hops are in there. And I know how I could find out. And I probably won't. It's very tasty. Oh, but I do really want to know. Especially because I feel like Ben Johnson put a lot of pressure on me. Anyway, we're done here. Not done done. Don't worry. I know it's already been 30 minutes. You're going to have to... No, you don't have to stick around. You can stop listening anytime you want. I don't care. Slide that time bar to the end and leave me in the dust. I'll still talk. Uh, very tasty beer. I picked this up at um, the brewery in Etobicoke. I assume you can also get it at the brew pub. I don't think you can get it at the LCBO, but maybe you can. Just go to the brewery. Ton of fun. Great spot. Go get a tattoo from... <laughs> go get a tattoo from Steph. Ha! Good luck with that. She's really hard to book in with. Um, but then, whatever you do in, out that way, then go buy Great Lakes and pick some of this up. It's very tasty. If you like double IPAs, if you're one of those people who whines a lot about how bitter IPAs have got, why don't you not drink it? Um, that's the advice uh, from your friend. Chris Schreier. I need another sip. Mmm. So good. Hey, speaking of so good, wasn't this weekend of rugby so good? How was that for a transition? What did we have on tap this weekend? Well, first game of the weekend, Saturday morning, afternoon if you're in the UK, but we're talking from Toronto. First game of the weekend, Wales, the young upstarts. Testing their metal against the best team in the world again? Maybe second? I've lost track. Hmm. Hang on. We're not in a hurry, guys. We are not in a hurry. World Rugby Men's Standings. Yep, that's what I want. Normally, Google just gives me the table. Stupid Google. Ireland is second, and by the end of the Six Nations, I think they'll have overtaken South Africa to become the best team in the world. Currently, it goes South Africa, Ireland, New Zealand, France. England in fifth. That doesn't seem right. Scotland in sixth. That does seem right. Argentina, Wales in eighth. Incidentally, doesn't seem right, but let's not cast stones. Australia in ninth, and Italy in 10th. Nice to see all six countries of the Six Nations 
represented in the top 10 of world rugby. That's good. That's positive. Um, anyway, Wales was testing their metal, as I was saying before I got distracted, against the number two side in the world, Ireland. Whew. Now look, nobody expected Wales to win, myself included. I did pick them in my pool, but we call that a value bet. I mean, could Wales have beaten Ireland? It's possible if Ireland wasn't firing and if Wales was having the game of this current team's life. Yeah, they could have. Um, they absolutely could have. Wales is a very good team. Wales's thing, like Wales teams of the past, is good golly, can they defend well. They just make it really, really hard to get points. The problem with that, of course, is at some point you also have to score points. It isn't enough to prevent your opponent from scoring. You do also have to get a few yourself. And um, they had some brilliant play. Um, they did score. It was it was they had seven points, which is a converted try in this context. Only way you can get seven points in rugby just is through a converted try. Um, anyway, they had seven points. That's that's positive. Um that said, um, Ireland did finish with thir 31 points. So incidentally, the bookies had the spread at 23. So that's basically exactly where everyone thought they were going to be anyway. Uh, it's funny because uh, myself, a number of rugby pundits up to and including the the head coach of Wales, Warren Gatlin, all said that scoreline probably doesn't really fairly represent the game um, that really looks like Ireland ran away with it and I mean you can't argue with that score they did run away with it but Wales really stuck with them for a long time they really did make it difficult um, you know you can't argue that a really good defensive performance means you probably deserve more points because that's the way you get more points is not defense it's offense um, but still Thinking, oh, yeah, they lost by 24 points. That probably isn't a fair assessment of the game. The flip to that is Ireland's coach, Andy Farrell, said that, in fact, he thinks they probably could have won by 40-something. Um, they just took their foot off the pedal. So, depends who you ask. I think, I, I felt proud of Wales. I think they really, they, they played well against the second best team in the world. Incidentally, a team that is notorious for immediately and tragically punishing your mistakes. So against a lot of teams, eh, you knock the ball on, not the end of the world. Yeah, they're going to get a scrum and you're going to have to defend it. Blah, blah, blah. No, what actually normally happens when you knock on the ball with Ireland is one of them picks it up and just runs it in for a try. There's no scrum. There's no second chance. They just score. So that... Ireland only scored 31 points. I think that shows a not bad effort from, again, a very young Welsh side still trying to figure out where their mojo is. I, I think Wales's future is is bright. I, I feel good about it. Um, so that was, you know, not the best way for a Wales fan to start the weekend, but not bad. And again, nobody thought they were going to beat Ireland. Nobody. Next game absolutely promising to be the game of at least the weekend maybe the game of the tournament depending on whether or not both teams showed up and I mean that figuratively obviously both teams were physically there the game in question of course the oldest contested trophy in sports the Calcutta Cup which is contested annually during the Six Nations between England and Scotland. England, who historically have been the superior team by often orders of magnitude. Scotland, the scrappy young northerners, just trying their best. Scotland went through a very dark period in rugby for a very long time, but I mean, certainly, especially this year, have really turned it around. But for the past five or how I've even lost track. I think it's six years now since England have won the Calcutta cup. 
Now, the current stat is that Scotland have won it the past four years. But previous to that, not won the cup, they've won the game. Uh, so for the past four years, they've had four straight victories against England. But the year before that, I believe they drew. And the year before that draw, Scotland had also won, which means they kept the cup. If you if if the teams draw, the team that won it last year just gets to keep it. And so I think it's I think Scotland's had the Calcutta Cup for six years now, since like 2018, which is mind boggling because in 2018, Scotland had no business beating England. But for some reason, Scotland can get up for England in a way that they can't for any other team in the world, like up to and including the best playing Ireland, playing South Africa, playing uh, New Zealand. Scotland often look very much out of their depth, but for some reason against England, I say for some reason, let's be honest, we all know they hate the English. The English colonized them. The English treated them horribly. The English under Thatcher eviscerated their unionized jobs and destroyed their social housing and did all sorts of terrible things basically on the grounds that eh, we don't really like Scottish people. So they got plenty of reason to be mad. Plenty of reason. Maybe not as much as the Irish, but they're up there, you know? There's a reason why the Welsh, Irish, and Scottish all hate the English, and it isn't some sense of like, oh, eh, they just don't like us because we're better. No, they hate you because you're colonizers and you killed a lot of people they loved. That's why they hate you. Anyway, uh, two weeks ago I was saying Scotland playing France should have won. They'd scored a try at the end, but it wasn't allowed based on the review. And I said, the thing is... Scotland really could have won that game with no questions, but Scotland still to this day aren't, and I use the term, they're not an 80-minute team. They, they always seem to, to struggle in the middle to back part of the second half. They just fall off, and if the other team has the wherewithal and the score isn't out of reach, they can often overtake them, which is like what happened with France. On Saturday against England... Uh, England came out early. The first 20 minutes, it actually looked like it was going to be very much an English game. Uh, they went up 10-0. And then Scotland just went full-on Franco Begbie from train spotting on them and beat the hell out of them. Duane Vandermerve got the first Scottish Six Nations uh, hat-trick with three beautiful tries. People will point out he is South African. He was born in South Africa. He is fully Scottish qualified. And to be fair, South Africa didn't want him. So Scotland went, yeah, man, we'd love to have you. Come on out. Now he's pulling up trees for them. He is arguably one of the best wingers in the world, including wingers uh, who play for South Africa. South Africa would love at this moment to have Duane Vandermerve, but it's too late. He's now Scottish. Anyway, heck of a game. Finn Russell played the pants off of the other team. Blair Kinghorn looked great. Like, it was a great, great game made better by the fact that Scotland just went from strength to strength and dominated and won the Calcutta Cup. It was amazing. England didn't play particularly well. They looked like a team... Not even in transition. They look like a team kind of lost at sea right now. Um, they know that they can play a strong kicking game, but the game has changed, and playing a strong kicking game isn't nearly as important as it used to be. And it looks like they're kind of like, well, that's what we do, and we know it doesn't work, so we don't know what we're going to do. And then they lose. It's so beautiful. Gosh, <laughs> nothing makes me happier than England losing at rugby. Anyway, that's that game was what we call a real ding dong and Scotland came out on top. And that's why somebody should make a wee heavy and they should call it um, Vandermerve wee heavy. Something like that. Anyway, last game of the weekend, Sunday, Italy against France. France has been foundering. Now, they did win against Scotland again under highly questionable circumstances with what can only be described as a missed call by the both uh, match official and television match official. But hey, a win's a win, and they won. So they were riding high. 
They're playing Italy, who historically in the tournament are the team that you know you're going to beat. The game against Italy is when you run out your kids to get them some international experience. In a worst case, in the 50th minute, if it's looking like the game is in the balance, you just bring on a couple of your senior guys and you kick the hell out of Italy and everyone's fine. That said, this tournament, Italy has been playing better than I've ever seen them play. Ever. And against France, a team who about a year ago looked like on their day they could have beaten a team like the All Blacks or the Box are playing shockingly poor rugby without their talismanic number nine, Anton Dupont, who increasingly, it appears, is actually the glue that was holding the team together. And despite the fact that it's a team stacked with talented players, it doesn't actually look like their management can do much with them. It looks like probably what they've been coaching has been do what Dupont tells you to do. Be in the right spot for Dupont to throw you the ball. You know, if in doubt, Get the ball to DuPont and he'll figure it out. That literally seems to have been their game plan because without DuPont, you've got world-class players who look like they're high school kids, unable to link up plays, making stupid handling errors, sloppy penalties, just garbage play for the most part. And the flip to that is Italy, who admittedly still is playing a bit of a ropey kind of game, played the hell out of it. They were down. They scored a try with about 10 minutes to go to tie it up at 13-13. And then actually had a penalty opportunity. Now, some weird stuff happened. And also, some completely illegal stuff happened. But the weird thing that happened is this. When, you, when, you, uh, when, you, when you're awarded a penalty... The official will uh, mark a spot on the field. This is where the infraction took place. This is where the penalty will be taken from. There's a couple of different things you can do. But one of the options is you can say, we would like to kick for points, which means that your kicker is going to try and kick the ball from the mark through the uprights. And if they do that, they get three points. It's nice. It's easy three points. Often you'll hear a person, and it might be me at a match, going, take the points, take the points. And what they're saying, I'm saying, is... Don't try and kick to the corner for possession. Don't try a quick tap and go. Just calmly tee up the ball, kick it through the uprights, take the three points because the opposing team then has to kick the ball back off to you. So you get possession right back. And if you were in a position to kick a point and you'd gotten a penalty, it's likely that you currently have the momentum. And so you want to keep that momentum going. Anyway, Italy decided with like, I think about three minutes to go to kick the points. It was a very makeable kick. It wasn't straight on, it was slightly angled, but it was a very makeable kick. At that point, as soon as you indicate to the official, we're going for uh, points, the official will take both of their hands and they will point them at the uprights, and that is the visual indicator to everyone in the stadium. Uh, They're going for points, and at that moment, a clock starts, and you now, as the kicker, or whoever, the, the... Team awarded the penalty, it's going to be their kicker, now have 60 seconds to make that kick. And if you don't make the kick within that 60 seconds, the ball is given to the other team and they kick it off from the goal line. It's a bit different, but they kick it off from the goal line. Or it might be a 22. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is you don't get the ball. Yeah, you get it back when they kick it, but you've wasted your opportunity. This is true no matter what. So, and what happened on Sunday is the kicker teed up the ball. So tee is like a little plastic device that holds the ball up off the ground a little bit. The the ones that most professionals like to use these days are very minimal. And in fact, in an open stadium, which this was not, but in an open stadium, if there's wind, it can often be impossible to use one of these because it'll keep falling over because the wind will keep blowing the ball over. Anyway, this stadium had no wind. It was dead still. But the kicker teed up the ball, backed up to make his kick approach, and while he did that, the tee and the ball fell over. He had about 15 seconds left in the 60 seconds at that point, so he very quickly went over, righted the tee with the ball on it, quickly went back to take his kick, took it, and missed. He hit the post. The ball did not go through. 
On a penalty when that happens, if the ball doesn't go out of the field of play, anybody can collect it and play on it. And in this case, France picked up the ball and played it on. However, I told you that something weird happened. That was the ball falling off of the tee. It mentally messes with you. It can make it very difficult to successfully kick the ball. In fact, sometimes if it happens too close to the end of the time, you don't even have time to re-tee it. You have to take a drop kick from that spot. <coughs> it's not a good thing. Nobody likes that. But what happened that was illegal was that when the kicker... Actually, funny enough, when the ball fell, this happened as well. And when the kicker made his approach to kick the ball, a member of the French team charged the ball down. Didn't touch it. Didn't even come close, but ran off his mark and attempted to charge down on the ball. Now, if you're into rugby and you were watching the game two weeks ago, uh, the Welsh team did this to the English kicker, George Ford, with success. They interrupted his kick. He wasn't able to successfully kick the ball. A lot of people, if you read the social medias, are saying, play on. It's the exact same thing that happened as with Wales and England. But it's not. Because in the case of Wales and England, that was a conversion after a try. The rule with a conversion is it has to be taken in a perpendicular line out from where the try was scored. You can bring it out as far or as close as you want, um, but it has to be in a dead straight perpendicular line with where the try was scored. When you do that, the defending team, the team that's been scored on, have to, they say, retire behind the goal line, which means the players all have to be on the goal line or back of it. As soon as the kicker initiates their approach to make the kick, any player from the other team is welcome to attempt to charge down, to run out, and what they'll normally do is they'll run, and as the player kicks, they'll jump and extend their arms in the air, and they're trying to hit the ball out of the air. It's real hard to do, but it does happen sometimes. It happened in the World Cup. Cheslin Colby famously charged down a conversion. It was mind-boggling. You've got to be fast, you've got to have a big jump, and you've got to be brave. And he did it. But on a penalty, the rule is different. On a penalty, the team that committed the infraction that the penalty was against have to retire 10 meters from the mark. So you have to be at least 10 meters away from where the kicker is taking place. And you must stand perfectly still, and they literally specify with your hands at your sides, not speaking. You have to be quiet. You can't move. You can't even put your hands above your head. You have to stand quietly with your hands at your side and not move. And you have to do that until the kicker has struck the ball. At that point, you can do anything you want. Normally what you do is turn around and see if the kick got scored. But a French player didn't. The French player attempted to charge down the ball. Now, he didn't. He didn't touch it. He didn't get close to it. But even in a perfect world, and by the way, remember, this kick was not a perfect situation. The, the Italian player had had to re-tee the ball with about 15 seconds left. He was already under an immense amount of pressure. He was already under immense pressure because the game was tied and this kick was to win the game. Then the ball fell off the tee and he had a limited amount of time and he still was kicking to win the game. Fran Italy has never beaten France in the modern era and certainly has never beaten them in the, in the Six Nations. This would have been a generational win for Italy if he'd successfully kicked that ball. So the pressure was very, 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 very high. To suggest that the kicker running up didn't at least factor into his concentration break, causing him to not strike the ball cleanly and hit it off the post, is of course crazy. He absolutely must have been affected by this. And to be fair, professional kickers are very, 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 very focused, and so maybe it didn't actually have a tangible impact, but regardless, it's against the laws of the game. And the, uh, the official ruling is... If a player attempting a penalty kick attempts a kick and misses it, and one of the players, or many, but at least one, violated the laws, which is to say didn't retire 10 meters and stand 
perfectly still with their hands at their side, not talking, i.e. they charged the runner. The uh, remedy is that the official remarks the penalty kick 10 meters closer to the goal line and the kicker is allowed to reattempt, including a resetting of the clock, a full 60 seconds. It's called getting marched 10. It happens when you, often when you, when you commit a penalty after having just committed a penalty, which is to say you commit a penalty, like say you're offside or hands in the ruck or something, I not say innocent, none of that's innocent, they're all penalties, but it's a penalty and the official calls a mark and you say something like, you're such an idiot, what are you talking about? And the official goes, cool, second penalty, let's move 10 meters upfield. And almost always the official will turn to the player who committed the second infraction and say, want to do that again? <laughs> um, it's kind of cute, actually. But anyway, the point is the Italian kicker should have not only had a second opportunity to make that kick, but a second opportunity 10 meters closer which would have made it almost a guarantee. You would have kicked those points. Italy would have gone up by three points and France would have had to kick back off to them. Italy probably would have maintained possession for the two or three minutes left in the game and then kicked the ball out and won the game. And again, as I say, it would have been a generational win. However, the official did not observe that law. Right now, it's actually up in the air. Like, what's going to happen is nothing. Italy lost that game. There's no way you can reverse a, a, a finished game like that. However, at some point, somebody somewhere is going to have to say, these officials calling these French games are not making good calls. Uh, Scotland absolutely scored against France. The TMO even said it, but the official didn't go with it. Over didn't overturn, to be fair just stayed with his on-field decision that there was no try. In this game, the French defender absolutely illegally charged the ball, and there was no penalty, which is insane. Italy shook it off. I mean, I say shook it off. They probably had a terrible night, but they'll be fine. They'll be back. France has got some real soul-searching to do because that's the second game in a row they've won based on a bad decision, which is to say the second game in a row they've won that they should have lost. That's not good. But that's rugby. Stuff happens. Anyway, with that very in-depth look at the uh, things that have happened this weekend, I'll preface what's happening this weekend coming up in the Six Nations, which is, once again, nothing. It's a fallow week. There are no games. The following games will be uh, the uh, second and third weekends in March. Those are the weekends, incidentally, that bookend March break. If you are a person with a person in your life who attends public school in Ontario, that's their holiday. Now, I will be back next Monday drinking a beer and talking about beer. However, the next Monday, which I believe is like March the 11th, I think it's the 11th, yeah, that's right, because the following one is the 18th. That checks out. March 11th and March 18th, I will not be here, because I will be in Florida. Now, can I record a podcast in Florida? Yeah-ish. Am I going to? Almost certainly not. Might I post some pictures of some delicious American beers I'm drinking in America? Possibly on the beach? at least surrounded by alligators and palm trees, if not on a beach? Yes. High probability. Will I remember to do it for the Toronto Beer Podcast Instagram page? Maybe. It would behoove you to follow my personal account at Chris Schreier, S-C-H-R-Y-E-R, where I will almost certainly be posting photos from Florida. This is all to say... The next time we talk rugby might be the full tournament wrap-up, and it'll be about a week old at that point. Which will be fine. That'll be fine. But I know you'll, you'll miss it. So I would encourage you to check out the games. They're going to be great. I would encourage you to meet me back here next Monday around this same time. I'll be drinking a beer. We'll be talking about beer. I will preview the rugby for the weekend coming up. It's going to be proper. But, uh... And then I will bid you farewell for three full weeks, and I will hope you will be okay. And if you're not, I hope you end up okay. Anyway, 
That's all neither here nor there. My voice made it, although I've got a cough building that I really want to attend to, and I don't want to do it on microphone. So I'm going to let you go. This is my buddy Rob Curry. Buy this record in the uh, link. No, in the notes. There's a link. There's a link in the notes. Gosh, I got a cough. Buy the record. It's a banger. This is Link Ray Gun. This is Rob Curry. I love you all. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.